0: And welcome to The Review for the 13th of December I'm your host as always, Graham McKay I'm joined by someone who is wearing two jumpers A jumper on a jumper, action. Christian Wilf, how are you, Christian?
1: I'm, I, I, well, I'm warm because I'm wearing two jumpers I'm uh, wearing a quite elaborate Norwegian um, kind They're kind of hipster now But mm-hmm. I just wear yours for warmth And you, Graham, are sitting in a t-shirt So so, I'm Scott oh, Brown this, this podcast. Does this say something about the insulation in German homes compared to Scottish ones? So, what's happening? Because I presume it's cold where well, you are as well.
0: It's minus six, uh, okay. but we're paying 250 euros a month for gas. So, I'll get used to
1: it. Is that fixed price? So, you can just.
0: Like. it was fixed plate you know how they used to have these caps just kept moving up and kind of getting away the the idea of a cap it was a fixed price at 95 euros a month and then it was unfixed to go up to 250 oh. so really like okay. the, the use of fixed good semantics there
1: uh. maybe you should just buy a sweater so i get too warm
0: i, I, I run hot as you well know yes i do i do so we've got a few Celtic-related stories to talk about tonight, and then we're going to transition to talking about World Cup action. Uh, and we've also got a guest. We've got Joe, uh, who's been on before. Liverpool fan. We're going to talk to him about the takeover plans for Liverpool.
1: I, I like the way you obviously forgot his surname there. And you just went with no, Joe. No, I not
0: forget. I, I, just, <laughs> I, was, I wanted it to be on first name terms. It's Joe Blotts a Joe Blott, uh, F- friend of the
1: pod. Of yeah. course, the, the the chairperson of uh, Spirit of the the Label Supporters Union.
0: So I do I do appreciate parents. that saw that a son name was quite close to blogs and went to <laughs> join. anyway. That's I like that. Yeah, there you go. Gumption.
1: You should start with that when it comes on. Yeah,
0: maybe. We'll see. So, Alistair Johnson has obviously been uh, paraded. He is now in paradise, as you will have seen from his uh, social media, and he's given quite a big interview with uh, the Celtic website. And there's a few interesting uh, thoughts out of it. He's speaking about how when he when he was watching Champions League, anytime he saw that Celtic were at home, that's the game that he watched, uh, just because he, he found that the atmosphere so interesting. Uh, he spoke about it being a fan base that's obviously known all over the world. Um, he spoke about speaking to Victor Winyama and basically, yeah, uh, being, being told that uh, it's the biggest club that Winyama's played for uh, and he's still, wherever uh, where he goes, he'll, he'll get someone shouting hail, hail to him. So it's like being a sell for life. Uh, he said that being this kind of signing and being at the World Cup at the same time has essentially been the best and the craziest time of his life so far. Um, and he has heard from a lot of people that the league is a blast to play in. Uh, what do you... So, obviously, we were thinking about questions for uh, Alistair Johnson for the, the press conference today, and you, you wanted to kind of get his thoughts on the inverted role. Um, what what did you see from Alistair Johnson during the World Cup that makes you think that he will be able to do it? If if you if that is your opinion, uh, what what do well, how what, well, what, what do you see the transition for him?
1: First of all, I told Keith to ask those questions. So are these quotes a signal that Keith didn't ask those questions? That's that's why first that's why I'm going to ask Keith after this. <laughs> uh, <to be> <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's embargoed until tomorrow. So Alistair Johnson. I mean, I guess in the World Cup he was. I talked about when we, we discussed him. Obviously, he's he's usually playing the back three or back five, and I think in the back, if you're a wing back in that system, I think you you would won't generally do much invert, uh, invertedness because you know by being the widest of a five, being then nominally pretty much the only wide player in that system, you know, you usually stay wide <laughs> the, uh, usually. And the same moment he's been in the back 3 he's been uh, a right centre-back and obviously slightly more defensive but I, I guess also then slightly more inverted. So I think that is interesting somebody who's played two very as different right-sided defensive jobs as you can be really once a, you know the, the right-sided centre-back and the right wing-back. And I guess that you'd hope that from both of those positions and learning those positions, and they require different things. so Obviously, the right centre back is a lot more inverted role in it, uh, although it starts a bit more centrally, obviously. And whereas, as you say, we've seen you know we went through you know passing maps and with you know the large amount of crosses it takes from. He's done a lot of traditional fullback things at wide as well. So I, I think looking at him. He doesn't strike me. This is maybe a good thing for the inverted role. He doesn't strike me as an out and out wing back or fullback, you know, because he's got he's got decent pace, he's got decent um, acceleration and decent technique. But that's the word, decent. You know, he's not uh, a fring pong or even a Uranus type of of fullback marauding. marauding or can carry the ball. He is, seems to be more has, you know, it's. <laughs> Craig Taylor-ish, I guess, in terms of he he would have to be able to be clever in a way. You know, Craig Craig Taylor doesn't have a lot of speed and acceleration and technique, so he has to be clever. He has to be clever when he moves, where he moves, um, from what point to which point, and as I said, the timing of it. And then he has to have a very good passing foot, which Craig Taylor has as well. So I, I think that's where you hope Alistair Johnston will kind of thrive in the system that he's. He understands the system. He has, I guess, if you can, compl- I've said that he, he you know, he, it's not your average type of left, uh, right back. He's probably have more of the traits, Anthony Ralston has, but, I would think from what I've seen, from you know, a little bit better technique, a bit faster, a bit kind of natural in, inclination to go in, inside and have the technique to do those in in, in you know tight spaces that. You know, for, for all his strengths, Ralston don't really have. Um, and you see how Anthony Ralston has adopted that role, and, and he's somebody who dutifully does does those things, and, and he tries to make the system work as much as possible. I, I think we'll see the same from Alistair Johnson, like not an out now, Al- not a Burnaby or and that kind of hugely talented, huge speed, great dribbles, so. But somebody who's have to be more considered, and, and maybe will fit the system really well because of that. Does
0: it say anything about the system that we have almost tried to balance up the left back and right back with another Greg Taylor, like as opposed to going for a marauding fullback? Does it does it suggest to you that that's the type of fullback that Ange wants in that system, or is it a case of the marauding type, or harder to find and more expensive?
1: Yeah, it is really difficult to to find a advantage. I think I think you've seen how. Good, he actually is now the skill set he has. That is a really good combination of both. And I think so. So, I think with your you kind of, you know, we kind of struck gold because of that. And it hasn't been perfect by no means, but he's an incredible by like a million and a half. Whereas, I do think, as you say, you are probably able to get a. Yeah, in a way that you know those kind of traits, as you say, you know, really fast acceleration, great dribbler, carry the ball, you know, beat plays one on one. It probably comes with a price tag. And it probably it is still the traditional fullback role. Now it's becoming more and more a valuable commodity being a really good inverted fullback as 'cause Smash City has been playing and Arsenal started playing them, obviously Celtic. And so but there's probably still a, a sense that there's not that many teams that actually are looking for those kind of qualities. So whether Johnston will be it or not, I don't know, but it, it, it doesn't immediately put him at a disadvantage that he, he's not fantastic at those traditional fullback teams in the system.
0: So also went on to talk about <laughs> the importance of the manager and the coaching team to him. He said he didn't just want to go somewhere for a name. He wanted to go somewhere that he was truly wanted and that he was in the plans. He said that's something he felt from the the speaking to the Ange and the coaching staff, they want to play a certain way and bring in young, talented players that have an edge to them. and He, he says he thinks that he, he fits in that mode, but then he said, "But so did the other two right backs." And he he said he was talking to Ange and You you can see how much he knows about the game, how much he cares for giving young players an opportunity, and also how he's done with his recruiting. Hopefully, hopefully, there can be another one in that long line of players that he's brought over who have shown not only Scotland but all of Europe that they can play. So, uh, again, I mean, these signings are always going to be saying the right things when they come to a club, unless it's someone like Paul Telfer who came in and said that he didn't actually watch football in his spare time. But that was uh,
1: another... I I wasn't there in the 90s, mate, so I can't comment
0: on that. Unfortunately, this was the eighties.
1: Okay, I wasn't there either.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So another, uh, well, not a new signing, but a a hopeful signing is uh, Cho. We've spoken about him before. You, You went over the kind of profile of the player that he is. Uh, he has been speaking on uh, South Korean TV, a station called Saturday White. Oh, yeah, I know that. Uh, yeah, it's like Saturday, AM, but uh, more controversial. Yeah. Uh, and he That's says, <laughs> rather than dreaming of signing for one specific club, for me, being able to play week in, uh, week out is the most important aspect of any move. Or be- the exact way it's playing every week. So I guess that is week in, week out. Do you think, from what you've seen of this player, knowing that we have Kyogo, that Celtic will be in a position where they can say to him, "You're going to be playing every week"? What kind of uh, game time do you think Celtic would be able to offer Cho at this stage, with Jack and is still there and with Kyogo? Yeah.
1: I, I I honestly think you can only play one of them. Right? You can play, you know, in in certain situations in certain games, you can. You can have one. Of them. You can have three strikers if you want, to, if you find a lot. But uh, I, I don't really see a way where Drew, as we talked about, he's he is very much, I think, a number nine. You know, he, he is okay. I mean, you can drift a bit wide and so on. But I, I can't see him as a wide player in the system where the wide players are supposed to stay out, stay out wide <laughs> um, until quite late on in attack. So. I think, again, you, you, you're you playing one of those three. And I think if you're saying, you know, I want to play every week, well, Gigi and Giogo pretty much play every week if they're fit. You know, one of them gets usually at least 30 minutes. So, which I, as I said before, I don't think that's a bad introduction for two. If he, it, say, he came in this window and, and say he took Gigi's minutes and Gigi's starts and games, I think that would probably be a sensible introduction for him. To just you know, <laughs> a new club, a new league, uh, a new continent, a new language, and everything. And then from the summer, you can have you see where he is, and you can see whether he can you know challenge Kyogo to to be number one. I I I, I don't really see how he have all three of them. To be honest, I, I don't I don't really see that. Um, so um, I think. I think if Gigi goes, or oh, even even if one of them goes in the summer, that's fine. You can bring another one in because you are just kind of a striker short, really. But as I said before, uh, I see more as a, a Gigi replacement than like somebody who would automatically straight away will, will you know unseat Kyogo. And so yeah, I, somebody's not going to be happy if, if you got those three strikers at least uh, until the summer. It's probably which is fine. Un- which is fine.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's probably unrealistic for someone to come from one season in the K League to be starting for a top European club in a week-in, week out basis. You know, so while he might not be happy with the uh, Jack Mackis minutes, I think it would be the realistic thing to do. So. Moving swiftly on, there was a Ryan McGowan story. And I think some of it's been covered before uh, with the idea of uh, Ange being a bit of a sociopath with his players. (laughs) Uh, Ryan says, he's the best coach I've worked with, but possibly the worst man manager I've ever had. He's so distant, so scary, and you're petrified of him. I still am. He would say certain things and have certain rules that were just a non-negotiable of what to do. And as an average player, I quite liked that. Uh, He then went on to tell the story of being on the plane. For 16 euros, next to Ange and Ange not saying uttering a single word to him, which I completely respect. Obviously, we had that video of Ange going uh, absolutely total at the Australian squad. I don't know if it was half-time or full-time, um, but he was going radio rental. And it kind of... I think we all think of Ange as a... like. Doesn't suffer fools gladly, but I think for most of us that was a side of Ange that we maybe didn't expect to see that kind of ferocious, scary side of him. What, what did you make of that uh, that clip and also this kind of uh, story from Ryan McGowan?
1: It's, I think it's interesting. He says he's the worst man I mean, manager ever. In, in the interesting part of that is, is what's the definition of a man management? A, a man manager, a good man manager, is it somebody who's Essentially, your pal or your like your nice uncle you know who's who's got that personal relationship with you, or is there somebody that makes you improve as a player essentially true true his man management, and it's maybe cold and ruthless, but you would look at him and think that's a brilliant man management because the way he gets the the team behind them and I think for me. When it when it comes to Ange, and you see, I I, I thought it was interesting. My guy said when he's Ange says he he loves doing it to freak the boys out. I think that's probably a, an element of a tactical approach from Ange to to be that aloof volu- because he wants to do it. But I, I think the thing with Ange is that it, it is him. That is who he is. So I t- I don't think he could be able to be you know, the, the pally manager, like a, a Jurgen Klopp, for example. You know, Jurgen Klopp is an excellent manager and he's got a completely different relationship with his players than than is, but I think it comes back to the kind of people they are. So while I think Ange can come across very direct, and you do watch some of his press conferences and you think, well, they're obviously quite funny. You also go, do you have to be, that that tone sometimes you have to be that level. But what I kind of think you're kind of, uh, um but I what I think that comes back to for me is that, that it's just him. Like I don't I think it'd be worse if he tried to be like the things Ash comes back with sometimes I think it would almost be worse if he thought oh he's just putting it on. He's just trying to put a front on like like Steven Gerrard to be honest. You know whereas Ash is just him and I think because he is like that. He could easily turn players against him, but I think the reason why you usually do not is because it is genuine and it comes across as genuine. And, I, I, you know, the Australia thing is I, <laughs> I can't remember who said it, it was it really set after, you know, the fight and flight instinct. And, that, that, and it's, uh, I don't think you can do that often, but I think if you hold. If you do once in a while and you have a certain management style anyway, he can be really effective when you do it. I think apparently Brendan Rogers could do that as well in a maybe a more, more just as threatening, but maybe a bit low key threatening way. So it's about knowing when to use because not going to, if he's screaming shit like that every time a, a game's not going well, he's not going to get much from the players, I think, in the long run. But because he's so genuine, because I, I think it is him. For better or worse, I, I think that's where he kind of derives that success from. And that's why he managed to kind of create those kind of teams.
0: Sure uh, England manager, Brendan Rogers. Yeah, right. Hey. With, with future that's, that's so England sweet. analyst, Jack. <laughs> uh, I think Brendan Rogers would be the type to like threaten to go to the parents, uh, the, the players' mothers, <laughs> like tell them that they've been naughty. That's the kind of guy he seems. Speaking of men, uh, we've been linked with a man. And uh, this is a man who, like myself, gets you excited, Christian. Mm. uh, He runs um, off. Is Aisa Lidowney. Okay, that's that's what I'm going with.
1: I'm not going to get correct (laughs) here.
0: And on on the start report, what I like to see is a lot of green. Mm hmm. And what I see is a lot of green. Yes. Why, this This is a defensive midfielder or a deep line midfielder, anyway. And he seems to be hot shit.
1: Talk us through it. What is he? That's the interesting part. So, yeah, Isa yeah. Lidoni. That's what I'm coming with. I'm probably going to go with six, seven different pronunciations for <laughs> this. But um, obviously, uh, he is 26 years old. When you hear this, he's 26 years old on the 13th. Happy birthday, Isa! Uh, when you hear this, and obviously uh, part of uh, Tunisia's team uh, to World Cup, um, born in France, played in France most of his youth, uh, but he went to Romania in 2018 for a couple of years. Then went to French Wars in 2020, and I can't, it, it feels like if we've signed someone. Because we've always been linked with someone from Ferencváros over the last few windows. And I think, I always have this kind of little theory, but I, I think Ferencváros is a good match for Celtic in terms of a step because it's not the best league, the Hungarian one, but it, they are a very similar situation to Celtic in terms of they usually dominate the league and then they have to do well in Europe against very different kind of opposition. So they have that kind of dominating domestically, but then we have to switch um, in Europe and, and try to achieve something so obviously it's, it's been linked heavily and so I, I went back, I need to, I need to watch him more but I watched watched back his game against France uh, in the World Cup, I'm going to watch uh, some from French virus games as well but I shared some clips with you as well Graham and I think even before we get into the stat report Genisha plays a three four three. 4 in that game against France, and he's one of the two kind of holding oh the double pivot I guess the two central midfielders. but the interesting thing about him is that he seems to have strengths and character characteristics, and this is kind of borne out from from the stat reports as well that I think he can do a six, but I also think he can do an eight, so I think that's the the first thing to kind of say with him is is you know Tunisian international plays for a team very similar to Celtic in terms of what he's facing domestically than in Europe, Um, you know, good age twenty twenty six, even still oh, getting a bit old almost, um, and yeah. but he's always like experienced. So all of those kind of things is it's it's very much a signing Celtics has made a lot the last since Ash came in. You know, 25, 26 years old, and a player. If you bring a player in like that, plays for that's just playing World Cup, you think. He, you know, he would challenge for the first team straight away. And I think Leidon would do that as well. And my question is, I don't know which role he would challenge in because... <laughs> and he was so even...
0: comfortable coming out from the back in the clips he sent me. Like He just has so much composure. So... It looks as if he's used to teams that play out from the back, which is which
1: is obviously very helpful. I, I think that's what you... There's a couple of things you notice with him straight away, right? He has a very distinctive running style. mm He's almost a little slightly James Forestish without the you know, but he actually moves his arms. What I'm saying is, it's it's got a nice bar. That's what I'm saying it's sticking out a bit. So it's, but it's he's probably a bit faster than maybe he looks. But as you say, he is very calm, comfortable on the ball. He's he's got, he's got good technique, but it's it's effective. But you know, I showed you a clip. You know, was a couple of what, six seven minutes left of the game against France quite a high ball that he has to chest down about 20 yards from his own goal. He's got two, three French players around him and you go, a lot of players then would just go, you know, And this is the
0: edge of your own box as well?
1: Yeah, edge of your own box. Takes it down, very cool, finds a good pass and it looks like the simplest thing in the world. And you saw some of the other things like, you know, talked about him in that France game specifically, you know, like if you talk about a six role, you know, there's another clip I sent to you where Janice is kind of playing it out Around the back, the French players are kind of pressing, and you can see how he moves, you know, from one side to the other. He's got, when he gets the ball, he's very calm and he, he lays it off. He lays it off at, you know, the correct simple pass, but he does it quickly. And then the ball goes up and bounces kind of back to him. And then suddenly he has a burst of acceleration, and it's like a lovely, like, outside of the foot pass diagonally over as well. So you kind of look at this guy, and he's like, he's almost, you have to really be careful not to be taken in by like a world cup game too much. Right. But you, you look at this guy and he's like, this seems in so many ways, just from that, f- a really good fit. Cause he, he does have that physical presence. You know, we can come to a scat, but, that, but he's, you know, he's almost six foot. You know, he is a unit as you, as you say, but he he can still move. I mean, it's not super fast, but he, you know, he's got decent pace and but his technique is is calm, uh, collective, and then watching it's, it's it's all really really encouraging. I think in terms of that. So you, you, here's a guy who he can play in that six, I think, and he he can he, he'll have the physicality. Okay, he doesn't have quite the acceleration and uh, you know the mobility to McGregor, who does. But I think it's it's still better than any other other six. You know, like an Nabil or anybody else. But he sure. still has that. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, but he still has the technique there as well. To I think, you know, very effective. Technique. I think you can see he'll be one, two touches. He'll he's happy to pass the ball between the lines, and so on. So he can he can be a creative at number six as well. But he also, I mean. What do you think, Ram? Like the clips I've shown you, I think you see the elements of somebody who who can play an abrade for Celtic as well because he's he runs in behind the defence. He's, I think he's quite happy in terms of a bit higher up, and you know, as I said, getting on via the fence, he gets a nice shot off against France as well, and he's he kind of seems to be able. What do you think in terms of doing that abrade role as well?
0: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that stands out about him is his fast feet. He's got yep. like a fast mind, and he can do the things that he needs to very quickly in tight spaces as well. So I think, especially in the SPL, SPFL, he's going to be need, needing those fast feet in tight spaces further up the park because you, you don't really need that so much when because we won't be defending as as much. But in Europe or against Rangers, I think it'd be ideal having him at six because he could just boss it,
1: people. And, and that's what Cal McGregor. I think why I saw as well Because when he has to be created from, from the 6 He can do it, but he can also step into an 8 And a 10 in the same game In the same attack sometimes But you know what do You know, I think when we do this It's always that we kind of lean towards so He's, he's kind of like the Celtic player of that one He does His kind of overall skill set Reminds me or Reminds me, not even My idea of Aaron Moy Five, six years ago if that makes sense, so he's somebody who has has really good technique, but has some combativeness about him as well. And I think Aaron Moy physically can do both now. Like he's still got the technique, but I think you do see the game can get away from him. That he can bypass him, but you can see that he used to. You know, when he played for Brighton and Huddersfield, he was he was also a player that I think you could be deep and creative but but also push up as a number eight and then be really dynamic and and, and do the attacking stuff as well so you can <laughs> it, it, i think that's not a bad kind of if i say so myself and um, comparison with um with isa <laughs> and just his last name a lady only. and that's somebody who that's very good technique. He is very calm on the ball, but he's, he also got the dynamism. He also got like, okay, maybe I don't think he's got as good. Maybe a stamina as McGregor or Hatati, but he's he's kind of like a younger Aramoi that can kind of do a little bit of everything. Does that, that sound weird? What what are you reckon?
0: No, no, I, th- I think so because I, I, I just I would li- like to see. How his stats match up to like Ermoy's uh, defensive side because he seems to be quite a defensive beast here when it comes to well,
1: duels well, and well that's the thing. So th- th- there's a couple of stats report and I'll, I'll I'll get Gal to put him out on the on Cynic as well. But first I compared him to all the defensive midfielder in our database. And as you say, like defensive success, for example, you know, all defensive duels won in the top quarter. In terms of interceptions in the top 17%, in terms of uh, winning the ball in opposition's half, you know, the top 10%. And okay, maybe he, he, sometimes maybe he pushes forward a bit more than other defensive midfielders, which is fine. But but add to that then, the dribbles, like, in terms of how many dribbles he takes in a game, he's in the top 1% of... 1% 1% of all defensive midfielders in our database. In terms of how many passes he takes, he's in the top 4%. In terms of how many chances he creates, he's in the top 3%. And the same with ball security and how many shots he takes. Also also very high. Lots of green, as you say. And I think that's probably an uh, element of, yes, he plays for Francois, so it's very, a team that dominates the league a lot. So you have your defensive midfielders push on a bit, and maybe he's a bit forward a bit more, but that's what you want in the Celtic, isn't it? That that is what you want to Celtic. So uh, I th- I think that's the case. Uh, you that is a really good fit. Again, like he loves a foul, right? He loves a foul in terms of um, is in terms of how many defensive duels and how many fouls he gives away. <laughs> it's like in the you know top seventeen percent, how many fouls he gives away. But other than that, I I think even when I take a look and and compare him to. All midfielders, where you add the central midfielders, you add the attacking midfielders and so on. Again, you know, very high chance creation stats, very ball possession stats, really high, dribbling very high, you know, in the top third of successful dribbles. And in terms of how many fouls he's suffered, you know, he suffers more fouls than 99% of other central midfielders. Again, interceptions, possession wins, everything like that. So high, sky high. So again, it's it's overall a, a really good picture. I think of of a player who can do a couple of roles. A Celtic and quite fit into the system in those couple of roles as well.
0: It sounds it sounds ideal, uh, and I'm very excited. And if it doesn't happen, I'm going to be very unhappy, Christian. With me, uh, with you, uh, okay. but also the the egoed the, the ear. Excuse me, yeah, egoed ear. No, I don't think you do. But the eagle deared listener might have heard you say a scat report there. I just want them to know there's never going to be a scat report from the 90 minutes. I think okay, will get a stat report only around here. Oh, let's see. But we've now been joined by Joe, Joe Um uh, Christian, earlier I said that I didn't know your last name, but I was just, <laughs> I was just calling you. by your you're first. I'm Joe, used to it. <laughs> we, we've got you on to talk about a couple of things, mostly um, Liverpool and uh, the new owners uh, that might be coming in. But before we get started on that, can we just say a massive congratulations for your, your Champions League campaign so far, in particular uh, two, two of the matches uh, in the middle of the group stage. I thought that was fantastic. Uh, did you get up for the game at all into Glasgow?
2: I did, I did, yeah. Um, it was a it was a great game, dare I say it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I loved it. Yeah, we, we had there there a great time.
2: Anyway, <laughs> I'm sure you did. Um <laughs> But but actually, I think I, I, I mean, obviously there's a there's a footballing side to it, and we needed to win, and we did, which was which was handsome enough to get us through to the the the, uh, the knockout stages. But I think what was really good about it was uh, uh, Spirit of Shankley with the fans support and food banks. Um, we, we managed to bring some supplies up uh, to the food banks in, in in Glasgow, and you know that's that's taken off. I know um, in the city now in a, in a big way, and I think that that kind of partnership amongst football fans is what leads the way and what, you know, governments need to be looking at really about grassroots um, work that takes place that actually, as we know, you know, f- hunger doesn't doesn't uh, have club colours. And, mm-hmm. you know, the most important thing was actually unifying and u- uniting us together, um, Liverpool and, and, uh, and, and Glasgow. And I, I'm glad that worked that day. And, you know, I'm sure there's more to come.
0: I like it was like a main course of doing goods, but like a dessert of battering Rangers at the same time. So. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, yeah. It's like a uh, Trojan horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, have you been watching the World Cup, Joe? What have you been made, made of it so far? Obviously, Qatar has been quite controversial and uh, we're going to get into that with you soon.
2: Yeah, in and out, to be honest with you. Funny enough, I've seen more of the afternoon games uh, than the evening games. Um, I to be honest, the first couple of rounds, I, I wasn't that impressed with the, with the actual level of football. Um, I, I thought it was too timid. And I think people were seeing that the result was more important than the performance. And, you know, as sometimes you, you need that. But at the same time, it's meant to be a world spectacle and um, never fe- didn't feel like that. Um, I suppose, that, you know, the knockout stages sort of bring a little bit more. But even they've been a little bit stayed, haven't they? That people are kind of trying to avoid defeat and clinging on to Mm. uh, the potential for extra time and penalties which is difficult
1: Joe obviously I I think the City of Liverpool and often Liverpool fans have a or at least seen as having a strained relationship with you know the the, maybe sometimes notion of England or the English national team Uh, how's you uh, how is the town, of Liverpool during the World Cup and what's, what's this kind of like your relationship with the English national team yourself
2: yeah, I think you know. I think it's well well documented, isn't it? that uh, that Liverpool for many years, because of the political stances taken and the political actions that have been taken against it, have never seen eye to eye, really, with 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 the national politics. But but equally with the national game, um, you know, I think I think from a footballing perspective, Liverpool fans always felt disgruntled back in you know the eighties when we were sweeping everyone in front of us, and yet. Our players couldn't get in the England team, um, which all seemed a bit surreal, really. When you know we were the best team in the country, um, but, but but our players never got there, so it always seemed like it, there was a bit of a, um, a history that if you if you're north of Watford, um, you didn't have much of a chance to to get in the England team. So so I think there's kind of a football incentive, but obviously the, the political side, the establishment side. Um, I think Liverpool fans are fairly, from from what I've seen over the last two or three weeks, are just fairly apathetic about it all. Really, um, I don't think I've, I haven't heard anyone condemning um, the England team, but equally I haven't heard anyone being in, in euphoric terms. But you know, you get you're going into going into town uh, last week. You know, the, the game was on in pubs, and people were in there watching it. So it's not as though people have turned turned their backs on it completely. But it's it's probably not number one on their list to do uh, to-do
0: list. So let's move on to, to talk about Liverpool in general. <clears throat> so a few weeks ago, for me, it came completely out of the blue. I don't know, that's the kind of first question I want, want to ask you. Did it come out of the blue for Liverpool fans that were, that maybe take to do uh, with the club a lot more than I would, just being uh, someone that watches the Premiership from up here? Uh, were you expecting this? Was it on the cards at any point?
2: The short answer to that is no. Uh, it took us all by surprise. Um for me personally it'd actually been i was in a meeting uh, in Anfield um in the morning of the announcement i got on the bus to leave the ground and uh, and there on 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 the athletic is is a reporter say that liverpool were up for sale which is a complete shock to be honest with you and uh, you know I, I spoke to immediately to committee colleagues and, and none of us have been made any in any way shape or form aware of it and um i think it was clearly a decision that had been taken uh, in Boston.
0: And oh, sorry, any go, question?
1: No, I was just gonna say, Joe, you know, because also part of the reason why we've had you before is to talk about your know, first of all, spirit of Shankley, what you've done, but also in general we had you on to talk about this supporters board, you know, that in terms of Luple's owners, FSG, had agreed to essentially set up a board made of Made up of of different supporters' group, in you know, spirit of Shankar being one, to have a like a, a constitution or a, a memorandum, that would you know at least in English Premier League terms, be quite a big step in terms of engaging with a fan base and consulting with a fan base, but also giving that fan base a, a veto essentially in, in a couple of uh, really key um, points, like if Liverpool were to join another league or a European League, for example, you know the supporters club would have a veto, so is first of all how is that supporters board actually going Joe and was that something you you'd expect to be consulted on before you read it in, as you say, the athletic
2: um yeah, I mean going to your first point um so we we're now six months into into the supporters board um I, it's starting to establish itself now in terms of having a, you know, a, a direction of travel. Um I think it's always difficult because it's not talking about operational issues; it's talking about those things you've just been saying. So it's a big, big issues that affect the, the football club. So, you know, those strategic matters don't come along every single day. They're, they're, they're part of the planning process, and I think that's what we're starting to get into now in, in terms of getting kind of more engaged and involved uh, with the club in terms of what they're plans and uh, and proposals are for, for the future um so should should this have come across our radar um yeah uh, in, in reality <laughs> um but but uh you know i i think this is from what i can interpret um this is this is a a business decision that fsg don't see forms part of the supporters board and you know you're you're right you, you use one of those the, the right terms that that's contained within the constitution uh, which is about engaging um so you would expect you know formal engagement um what they have said is that it was leaked um and they were they would have followed due process um and you know in terms of the new world that that we're in a kind of I kind of do believe that to to a degree because I don't think they would risk um, setting up a supporters board and then you know almost risk you know a, a, a massive challenge against it uh, so soon because of course one of the I think if they're looking for new investments if they're looking, looking for new owners um, having supporters on side is something that they need to have so so it is probably more. Error of judgment, or, or, as I say, maybe some some kind of a, a leak somewhere along the way, um, that I think caused everybody else, uh, inc- including the local officials here in Liverpool.
0: And so,
1: Hollywicker, oh no. just you so to speak to you, Joe. We're just jumping <laughs> <in>. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: obviously, one of the the uh, one of the problems we have nowadays when Premiership or Premier League teams are going up for sale is that they're just so expensive. Uh, only certain people can afford to to invest in them. Uh, I think it's three billion they're talking about for for Liverpool. Mm. And is it is it then a case that like a hedge fund like FSG is the best bet when it comes to new owners? Because you must be starting to worry about what could happen in the long run with whoever comes into the 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 club. Is it is it a case of looking and hoping for another similar owner like FSG?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's not going to be a supporter takeover, is it? <laughs> at, that, at, that, at that price now, uh, unfortunately. Um, look, I mean, it, it, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because it's all speculation at the moment about the who, what may be. And, um, you know, clearly the FSG line is that they, um, they're looking for investments. If that investment comes as a total takeover, then they'd look at that seriously. They, they ask the banks, uh, to look at that, um, but they weren't necessarily inviting a takeover bid uh, it was to see what 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 came in um, is a hedge fund um, better than some own, other owners who knows depends what the format is of a hedge fund really Graham. And I think you know part of part of the part of it is is that I think FSG have grown into this role um, so being around for, for the last sort of you know, sort of 11 12 years or so Um, I think they've become to understand the psyche of Liverpool far more than they did at the start so um, are they decent owners in terms of direction of travel Um, do they balance the books yes they do Um, do they bring top class players yes they do but it's at the expense of selling top class players Um, so it's for them it's very much about a balance sheet isn't it it's not about it's not about just investment and, and, and using their own money. They, you know, they, to be fair, they've not used any of their own money, but they've not taken any money out either. So, so from a, so from a purely financial point of view, you know, they're good stewards. Um, so, you know, the, whoever does at any point take over the club would take over, you know, a, a, a well-run outfit. Um, in In terms of, you know, the good old days of if you know the butcher, the baker, or you know being a the local philanthropist, as you just said, in terms of those costs have gone. So it's it's we're, we're the second highest supported club in world football. Sorry, in in, in English football, um and probably fourth or fifth in in world football. So it comes with that a high level of expectation. But comes with that as well high levels of risk. But I think you're probably alluding
1: to and Joe obviously you said this is something you would expect to be consulted on. but So I think this is the really interesting thing for, for Celtic fans in terms that you are such a huge club. And I think at the moment label is quite unique that supporters, at least at some point, has there's a mechanism to actually be consulted with on. Because at Celtic that just seems like complete fantasy at the moment. So in and, you know, me and Graham probably hope for at some point, you know, Celtic will be looking for new investors and maybe even a sale as well. But in a process like that, like that label might go through now, like that you as a supporters couple might go through. What do you think the supporters board will give you in terms of consultation and how much influence do you think we'll be able to have on even sort of a decision making process of saying, you know these are the type of owners we new owners or investors we want and these are the types we definitely do not want
2: yeah and I think some important points there chris I mean I think I think first of all it's just I think we have to be honest they're probably not going to consult us but they are you know i, I would certainly expect them to engage with us um I, I think the consultation bit is probably too far flung for them to to, to get a grip of in terms of what that means and you know, for me to think that I've got any kind of input into the decision-making process probably is naive. But I think, as you're, you're quite rightly pointed out, you know, surely we can have a say in the type of owners, uh, the type of direction, the values, the principles, um, those those stuff we hold dear, uh, either at Celtic or at Liverpool. Um, you know, you you want to keep hold of those. Uh, you want new owners to to take full responsibility and, and collective responsibility for them. Um, I think I think the beauty of the supporters board is is that you know on, on that committee we've got seven uh groups um which actually represent by and large you know almost like a hundred and nine million worldwide Liverpool fans. Um so that's a massive fan base that we can we can mobilize um to 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 consult with um and get a mandate and a steer from. Um and that's what we'd be doing, you know, I I think the difficulty about doing too much too soon now is we we don't really know what what is on the table because it's still the the only public documentation that FSG have produced that been has been about the seeking investments and that it could lead to junior owners. So until such time as um, we know what it is, I think all we can do is plan. So so you know, are we planning to to try and formulate? Um, what kind of values, what kind of principles, what kind of owners would we want? Yes, we are you know, and I think we'd all have visions of how that could be um, we could all have visions of kind of nation states that we might want, or we could have impacts of of you know human rights issues or or even financial issues you know the, you know, the word that you, you mentioned the hedge fund, but i mean you, you think about where united are in terms of. Um, glazers, um, mm. do we do we want glazers? Absolutely not. No, because um, all they're doing is is, is is potentially bankrupting the club, ready for the ready for you know another another takeover, but taking money out. So, so I think we, we kind of have to be careful on all angles. Really, it's it, it's it's a really really tricky situation. And I think you've also got to take into account they're genuine and, and they, they they should have genuine input. Is that you know, fans actually just want to see you know Jude Bellingham on the pitch or Declan Rice or or whoever else it might be, and we want to knock Man City off their uh, status at the moment. And we know Newcastle will build next season um, after, after this season. So, so we know there is huge challenges on the pitch that can, as football fans, really challenge our our own beliefs on our own um, our own. You know our own status and our own sort of, I suppose principles as well.
1: And I guess that's interesting because obviously, Joe, we exchanged a couple of emails in terms of what we're going to talk about today, and I think you made a good point that obviously you yourself might have an opinion on. Okay, I don't want that anybody from a hedge fund or investment fund from that to take over. But but you're the chair of the Supporters' Union, and as with any union, you collectively have to take. And as you say, you, you might start prepared prepare for this now. A decision that to go into these consultations, or as a group, say, you collectively have to take a decision that this is the type of owners we want, and this is the type of owners, we, this is a red line for us. So, it, is that a process that you will start now? And it, it, do you, I guess, am I saying <laughs> it's a difficult question, but how effective do you think you as an organization can be? If you put a red line saying, no, not that type, if you make that decision as an organization, how effective do you realistically think you can be and in, in influence that ultimate decision?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's something we've not met yet, isn't it? And mm. I, you know, I, think, I think the most important thing is, you're right, it's not about me. Um, it's, it's about our membership um they will give me a mandate or they will give our, our committee a mandate about what to take to the football club and and what to accept um expect and also have any red lines that, that you quite rightly say but um if if new owners cross that red line i'm not sure what we can do we can process we can we can challenge um but you know can can we veto the sale the reality is that, is that no, and, and, and we can't veto that even as a supporters' board. But we can certainly, as I keep switching to the supporters' board. But you know, when you think of the the groups that are on there, um, and we think of some of the um, alleged um, um, bidders for, for, for the club, um, I'm pretty sure that their groups would have a, a strong say. In, in the kind of organisation that they would want. You know, you think of our LGBT plus colleagues, you think of our uh, fans with disabilities, you think of our faith and ethnicity groups, um, you know, they, they, they will all have, you know, both positive and negative thoughts about, about the kind of organisation that, that Liverpool is taken over by, at, if at some point it is. Um, but, you know, to come to your point, can can we stop it? You know, well, we can't stop it around a table. It'd have to be kind of stopped by by protest. But you know how 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 you actually get that off the ground at, at, at that point is is something obviously we can only speculate on at the moment. In time. And
1: I, I will let Graham in uh, at some point. But <laughs> I, I, I do think Joe, when we've had you on before, we've talked about obviously the spirit of Shankly is probably maybe the best well-known football unit in in the UK. You have the supporters' board, which I think is leading as well, but. You did say something interesting in there in terms of, you will have a large section of any supporters' club that just wants to see the best players come in and just win all the trophies, and to be honest, don't really care about where that money come from. So, but I think that, that your real successes, you know, that that spirit of Shankly have been a driver for has been things where you you've had massive support throughout the fan base. so that's you know high ticket prices is the furlough issues during code it's the deliverable trademark stuff as well where collectively you've, you've seen you've been able to influence fsg even outside a supporter sport or anything like that but i guess you need to have that unity don't you joe because as we've seen with with newcastles first of all you know okay there's lots of dissenting voices but there's also a large group of the fan base who could not care less and if you want to achieve something if you want to try and influence this you're going to need a whole fan base pretty much aren't you
2: yeah it's 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 an enormous task really uh in terms of trying to do that but i think i could keep coming back to you know those with a legitimate voice are those who are part of part of either our union or as part of the the other six collectives in terms of being you know bona fide a People who have a voice. Then, of course, then you stretch that out and say, well, you know, who else do we need to speak to? But you can get, certainly get out of that, um, you know, a very, a very strong mandate um, from from the, the fan base who are every day engaged and have actually made a commitment to be engaged in. You know, when you think about a union in a workplace, you know, kind of you take the views of everybody who works there, but, but it's probably the ones who are the members who, who actually have the say. Uh, because they're the ones who would actually have the again the man democratic mandate to to vote on something to to give um the, the, the union organizers the the what they can go into the into the boardroom with and I think you know that's that's how we've got to play this. Um because otherwise you you're you're literally asking you know a hundred as I said a you know, hundred and six, hundred and seven million Individuals, what what's your view on X, Y, or Z? So you've got, to, but you've actually got to give them something in the first place. And I think that's what we'd be trying to do, is to say, this is what we think. Um, how does that how does that shape?
0: So there's, there's obviously been a few. Uh, I don't think names, but speculation on where a buyer could come from. There's one from Germany, which I will neither confirm nor deny. Is if it's my bid. Um, there's also the one that kind of gained headlines, which was the Qataria Saudi Arabia joint bid. And when, as Christian alluded to, there with Newcastle, they were they were celebrating in the streets when it happened, wearing like uh, Saudi outfits. And uh, obviously, there's a big difference because they had years of Mike Ashley to deal with, and it's a it's a very different scenario for for Liverpool. What is your feeling overall of what the reaction of this the seven main uh, unions would be? To the idea of a uh, Saudi Qatari uh, ownership, especially uh, Liverpool coming from such a socially aware uh, club, essentially. And do you think there would be some kind of movement if you're talking about 107 million, was it you said, 108 million represented by the. That depends Yeah. yeah.
2: Which one you read. Yeah.
0: Do you think there would be a reaction along the lines of looking for some kind of fan ownership for the club?
2: I mean, I, I mean that obviously remains a possibility. But as I say, I think the, the the chances of getting a a three billion purchase price of fan ownership is probably difficult. And then on top of that, you have got to have the money to spend to get those good players on the pitch as well. So you're looking, at, you know, you you're looking at significant amounts of money here. So as you get close to the top, obviously you, you end up getting in that situation where there's a narrow field of individuals or groups who you can actually purchase it. Um, you know, I, I think I, I think might have said on here, actually, but it certainly said before, you know, there's this part of me that thinks that FSG probably got to a position about three years ago, probably just about when we won won the league, the Premier League, um, that they probably maxed out on really their pot- potential, the numbers of people they could sail to, because it's, it's like a pyramid, isn't it? You know, and the and the closer you are to the bottom of that, the more chances you are of getting getting either new investors or or, or new owners. But the closer you get to the top, the more difficult it is because it's more expensive. Um so what you know, to to your specific point, I I, th- I think the problem is it's so 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 much speculation that you know it, it's difficult to go on record saying that you you wouldn't accept a, a bid from from X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. Because X, Y, or Z might well say, "But we'll uphold all those principles, and we'll we will do something different. We, you know, we will actually change the way that we are." Now, some some can't do that, you know, because it's it, it's it's inbuilt. So, how do how do we influence that? We've seen it with the World Cup, haven't we? In terms of Qatar, I mean, you know, lots of promises were made before the World Cup, um, and it appears that lots of promises were broken after the World Cup actually started. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we can't allow that to happen. So it comes back to your point, Chris, about having red lines. You know, that, that's what we've got to try and do. But you've got to mobilise people around those red lines. But a red line here, you know, for a a Liverpool fan from Qatar or Saudi Arabia, um, they'll probably love to be in a position to, for Liverpool to be owned by, you know, of up, up, up their own. Um, so... It, there's, there's a lot to marry up here. It's not, you know, kind of, it's not, it's not an easy one to weave our way through. And um, I think, to be honest with you, I think there's there's something national government need to do. We've obviously got the fan-led review um, that is hopefully going to be um, that this white paper, either this side or just the other side of Christmas. Um, when we get, an, you know, kind of an independent oversight of it, of, of cl- for. Club football that needs to really motor on what a fit and proper person is um, in terms of club ownership, and you know, I'd I'd like to think that even if that is a slow burner, that there's something that the the government can do to work with us now um, to try and make sure there's kind of almost a a guiding principle of what is acceptable, not acceptable in terms of ownership of what is effectively a community asset whether that's in, in Glasgow, Liverpool or Manchester or wherever.
1: Yeah, I mean, at, at least a, a government led by Keir Starmer wouldn't uh, have any issues with broken promises. Uh, Joe, put it. I think that just the last question for me, then, Joe, just, no matter who the owner is, obviously you have come forward with spiritual shank. You have come forward to support your sport. To sport. Do you know if the supporters board now is such a part of, I guess, the constitutional or memorandum of, of the club that no matter who would be the new owner, they would still have to honour the supporters board or could that go as well with the new owner?
2: No, because that, that would be part of the articles of association. Because, um, so the actual, any sale of the, the entity that is Liverpool Football Club is it's Athletics and Grounds Association and all of that. We're enshrined in that. Um, so we're kind of the the, the transfer of undertaking in, includes us. Now, you know, legally, they could probably unpick it and unravel it if they wanted to. But, you know, that's a challenge that they, they would have to take on. Um, but as I say, the, you know, f- from what I'm hearing is that, you know, the, uh, the supporters board helps Liverpool to demonstrate its... its uh, the current owners um, have stewarded it well and the supporters actually have a voice and they don't see any reason why that should change in the future and clearly nor, nor do we um, because we've got a contract and it's also in the memorandums and articles of association so so yeah we're, com- we're confident um, that should there be new owners um, that we'll be around the table with them in this, exactly the same way as we are with FSG.
0: Oh, Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you, and we won't take up any more of your time. Um, Spirit of Shankly is one of the, the seven unions uh, making up the the Fan Association at Liverpool, and we just hope that whatever happens moving forward is uh, ownership that the, the fans can be happy with and get behind. Christian, do you have anything else to add?
1: No, no, I, I, it's, it's always a pleasure speaking to Joe. Um, I always, you know, <laughs> Yes, I like to talk about Liverpool, obviously, but I think spiritual Shankly and the supporters board of Liverpool does show Celtic fans that that you can be one of the best uh, and you can be one of the biggest clubs in the world as well and fans can still organise and the club can still kind of willingly engage and consult with you on it. Um, at least in theory. So I, I think that's a really good example for Celtic fans. And I don't think she, we should settle for anything less than that uh, as well.
2: Thanks, as ever ha- have having me on. And, and look, I, I apologies for being a bit sort of, um, circuitous in some of the answers because, but some of it is, is just an unknown at the moment. Mm. Um, but I'm sure we'll be back on as soon, soon as anything concrete comes out. More than happy to, to join you again and, uh, and talk about where, where we're at in terms of, um, change and challenge. But thanks ever so much for having me on. And, uh, Hope to speak to you soon. Thanks a lot, Joe.
1: Yeah, thanks, Joe.
0: Christian, there's a World Cup happening. I don't know if you know this, but there's a World Cup happening over in the other side of the world. Um, that's why it's called a World Cup, because it happens
1: yes. in different parts And it's a cup. It it is, get, it's, literally not
0: like, a... it's not actually <laughs> a cup. It's, it's like a big thing you can beat someone to death with. A trophy? Yeah. Okay. You can't drink from it. I think that is what yes. defines a cup. I mean, you could drink down it as, as like. Like you know, the Queen's Cup. You know, Quentin Tarantino in uh, that vampire movie where he drinks a champagne down uh, a Hayek's foot? Don't, so you could drink don't get down. Started. Yeah. Oh, I forgot you were a Sam yeah. Stan. Yeah. So the World Cup, we, we left off a uh, last, a uh, last week where we, the next games after we recorded were going to be the, the quarterfinal between Morocco and Spain. And the quarterfinal against uh, with Portugal and Switzerland, with me obviously predicting Switzerland to crush Portugal and yes. Spain, yes. Uh, only to lose six one. Morocco have been one of the the stories of the World Cup, and you highlighted a pretty interesting uh, Twitter thread. Uh, these things do exist every now and again. Yes. About how essentially Morocco reinvented itself after two thousand and seven. So take us through what exactly they, they got up to that has made them go from like in, also runs to essentially like 90 minutes away from the World Cup final. Mean.
1: Well, I think there's two things happening in, in, in parallel because they did do, as Fred pointed out, back in 2007, the the killing of Morocco, the sixth, uh, of course, um, essentially spent a lot of money. King. Yeah, yeah, this is better than the one that hanging in the Rangers stress room for, for my money. Um, it's so obviously a large investment in, into reshaping national football. So I, I think essentially they built a, a whole new facility, uh, you know, football facility. You know, it, you know, essentially all all, all the all the mod cons in terms of um, the pitches. The infrastructure, the, the coaching—essentially setting up a, a national academy of, of football—and I think over like you know that fifteen years now, that academy, you know, has got close ties to, to some French clubs, and they're starting to have a great record of, of producing producing players. You know, there's some from the players in the squad coming from that academy, and you know, as we've often seen with you know countries like Germany and others, that it takes you know, a big national defeat, I guess, to kind of reset and and pour money or or focus attention and money into, into, you know, shaking things up, essentially. I think that that's part of Morocco's story here. But I I don't think it's... What I find interesting is that there's been this huge investment over the last 15 years in national academies and, and that kind of infrastructure of developing players. At the same time, this is, I think, the country, the squad in the World Cup that has the most... Foreign-born players in in the squad, and I think I think it's something like thirteen has been born uh, outside of Morocco, but about sixteen has like have roots or have a, a big part of their upbringing in another country. So, which you know, it's, it's essentially essentially complete opposite of you know developing you know, local players. But I, I think there's obviously a a sense that Morocco as a as a, as a state, as a nation, you know, a lot of people have emigrated from Morocco and, you know, they're becoming immigrants in other countries, but well, they've obviously kept that affinity uh, for the national team, and they've been able to use that diaspora uh, of players. So, so you have, you know, be it, you know, they have obviously three of the best players comes, uh you know, from played from the Netherlands, Spain, obviously a big French, you know, uh, the keeper Bono um, was born in Canada, for example. So it, it's a country that have done two things at the same time, complete opposite in terms of started developing, uh, you know, infrastructure of their own football development, but also used that huge diaspora of immigrants from the country. And brought them back into the fold, and I think I think such just a really nice, you know, mix. There's so many, you know, heartwarming <laughs> stories in terms of, um, you know, the, the Moroccan mums have become a, a huge thing uh, in this World Cup. You know, even the coach, uh Greg Agui, you know, he's I read an article here that his his mom. Uh, they used to work as a cleaner at Orly Airport in in Paris to like to to help her son's like his football career and and stuff like that. And there's obviously, um, you know, the, the, <laughs> there's always about ten moms on the pitch every time they win a game, which I think this thinks the way it should be, really. Uh, so yeah, it's such an interesting story from a football perspective. It's it's. I, I do like that sense of. I, I, I like it both way. I, I like it when a country is able to integrate their immigrants into the national team. I mm-hmm. like that, but I, I think it's also something almost sweet about these. Uh, it's probably across personally resonate maybe as well. These immigrants, or you know, and sons and of, of immigrants uh, and so on, still decide to represent their you know. To, to country of, of their of their family, so uh, I think it's it's just a, a really nice story so far, and it's you know it's it's been an antidote for me to to a lot of uh, other shittiness around the World Cup.
0: Yeah, and I think that for for Celtic fans, there's like three out of the four. Really, we have some kind of vested interest, and in. obviously Morocco being. The, the the scrappy underdog of it, and we always love that. We have uh, Argentina with Messi in his last chance, probably, to win a World Cup and shut up the people that think Diego Maradona was better. And uh, then, of course, you've got Juranovic at Croatia. And Croatia, and uh, I misspoke earlier, it was around the 16, but the uh, Croatia, when they got into the quarterfinals, were up against Brazil. And they continued to be very good at saving penalty kicks. And last yes. week we last week we spoke about goalkeeping at the World Cup, and a, a, another interesting thread. You, you you must you must follow the most interesting people on. Uh, I think it's John McKenzie that just gets them all to you. Um,
1: Look, he I guess people to John. That's yeah. how it works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the idea, about, <laughs> the idea here is about
0: the idea here is about the a change in stance from the goalkeepers. So if I'm if I'm reading this correctly. It's like basically keeping one foot on the line. Uh, on you go explain. That. You know, no, that's you
1: know the, the goalkeeping stat guru of, of John Harrison, friend of the pod, of course. Everybody's mm. a friend of the pod. Um so so he's obviously uh, we talked a lot about John before and it, there's a lot of his work around, you know, especially one-on-one situations, goalkeepers. But yeah, he's he's he, he writes for goalkeeper.com now, if you're a goalkeeper, goalkeeper.com. Good website. Um and it obviously said that, you know, there's been some stats at, at some point, I think, before the quarterfinals. Something crazy like 37% of all penalties on target had been saved. And the kind of average of all World Cups, a pretty steady one back in 1980, had been about 18% of penalties throughout. So it, it's gone down a little bit after a few penalty shoot test, but it's still about 30%. So one third of all the penalties on target in this World Cup have, have been saved. And you go... What's the reason for that? And, you know, John talks a little bit about a couple of potential reasons. Like a lot of the players are saying that the ball is a little bit lighter. So maybe they're a little bit careful about going too high, aiming too high. You know, that's not the one, thing you, the one thing you don't want to scram in a quarterfinal. <laughs> is five, six minutes left to get a penalty. Don't go too high. Yeah, and sure. if you do, if you do make sure you play for England. mm mm-hmm. So it, so you have that and then you kind of go, so John John's uh, astronomer of, of PhD or something so he's, he's so he's kind of say, okay is that the explanation you know is, is that and he says well it explains a little bit of it but not because if you know if players keeps the ball low more often, you know, often better chance of saving is true but not this much, it doesn't really explain this huge spike and then he kind of goes well yeah, here we go, you know, this, this small sample Klaxon. Can it just be a small sample Klaxon? He says, Like, well, he says, Yeah, like all these goalkeepers might be on a real hot streak right now, but you know, he's he's done some other maths. And he it says it's actually less than one percent chance that all of these goalkeepers will be on the social hot streak at the same time. And you go, okay. And I think his kind of theory, which I think is interesting, I think it's kind of stands up, is that VAR itself is an explanation for why now. More penalties are being saved. You know, um, he's got some league stats, but also like this specifically, World Cup is maybe where we see this. And as, as you say, there's, I guess, if you think what VAR has done, especially for penalties, it forces goalkeepers to to keep one foot on the line, right? And you, we've always seen this before, right? In terms of goalkeepers taking two, three steps out. So, so even on the six yard box on I'm, <laughs> I'm in the the city shock when a penalty is taken. And it is hardly ever, ever punished, hardly ever, ever retaken. And obviously with, with var as it is, if you save a penalty and your one of your foot is not on the line, it's gonna be retaken. Because you know everybody can see it, it's being subject to, to var and everything. So but, but as John's saying, actually, by not being able to jump out you've inadvertently made goalkeepers better at penalties at saving them. And his fear is essentially that. If you imagine a goalkeeper who jumps out, you know, uh he uses Hugo Lloris uh versus Poland uh in the group stages as um sorry in in the last sixteen as an example, he jumps from twelve yards out to say ten and a half yards out when the shot comes and he saves it but obviously it gets uh retaken. Because given that the shot is so central, there is very little advantage for you to be jumping out and cutting down the angle, especially with the way the players can curl the ball as well. So even though you're closing the angle, you're giving yourself less reaction time because you're closer to the ball. And as he's saying, if because of the angle the way it is, you have more chance of getting something on the ball, but it'll go under you because of the way you dive and because you jump outwards you jump forward what you often end up doing is what is kind of called a, a negative step and it's it, essentially negative steps is you it, it's where rather than pushing off the foot closest to the ball okay so the ball's going to the right instead of pushing off from your right foot, which is closest to the ball, you, you kind of that kind of negative step out, and they're kind of sweeping your own leg away from underneath you. And you kind of collapse down to the ground as quickly as possible because you're, you, you're taking a step to the other way and you, you kind of, you're collapsing more in a way. You can, you, okay, you, you make the angle less, but the kind of your footwork is it, worse. So it, that kind of negative step one way, it makes it almost impossible to say penalties, which goes into the corners, regardless of the, the power. Whereas what this VAR has forced you to do is, it seems like goalkeepers have taken more, what I call a, a, a power step dive. And that is a lot more vertical because since you, you can't move forwards, you're having to go sideways. <laughs> in a way. So, um, and because you're not thinking about jumping out to make an angle and kinda <laughs> cutting the angle because you have to jump sideways in a way, it can propel you to the corner of the goal mm. and you you can give them a a dive length a saving like that that that's that's greater so it, it's kinda and because you're kind of jumping more vertically as well, you're probably more likely to generate enough force to push the ball away from the net. How many penalties have I seen where the goalkeeper gets a hand on the ball? But it's, oh, it's a weak wrist. Mm. And the reason why it looks like a weak wrist is because the dive isn't powerful enough. But if you have a powerful dive, if you essentially, your mass is becoming more energy. <laughs> you know, um, I can't remember That's the Einstein's equation off the top of my head now. Um, but generous enough force to like push you more likely to push the ball away. So it's, it's just like, it, it, you can see a lot of uh, keepers uh, bone off of from Morocco does as well, as well, where you kind of have a dummy step to one side and another. So you take a couple of steps to kind of confuse the, the striker, but you're not taking that going out there. So uh, I think inadvertently, because you have to have a foot on, on the line. Now you have to have it. It means goalkeepers essentially can reach each side of the goal vertically better. You know, it's it's, so it's you know, VAR has uh, all the faults of VAR, it's even made the goalkeepers better at penalties.
0: Is there anything it can't do? Is there nothing it can't do, even? (laughs)
1: Uh, Great enjoyment of football, I guess.
0: Yes. We just hope for Morocco's sake they'll be able to win the World Cup with or without Bono.
1: Yes. Hopefully, it'll be a a bloody good Sunday for them. So. Just have no name.
0: No. Um, so <laughs> I, I don't know if you got time to look at this one. I, I sent it over to you just before recording, but then your boiler exploded. So
1: yes, I did not have time.
0: <laughs> it's actually a tweet from one of your own, uh, Ger Jordet. He is. A oh yes, Norwe- oh I did saw that. I did see that. You you see that one, Norwegian uh, sports science guy. And I don't I know I wa- who
1: he is. I, know
0: <laughs> who is. <laughs> I want I want to know what you think of this. So he's basically his premise. Is that even though a penalty is an individual task, teammates can help, assist, and support. And he points out basically that as soon as England won their first penalty, Jordan Henderson ran, got the ball, went to give it to Hurricane, and then acted as a shield for Hurricane for any any French French players come up and like jive talking him. And unfortunately for England. Kane's second penalty is won a minute after Jordan Henderson goes off the park and it basically just shows Harry Kane instantly surrounded by French players no one else has come forward to kind of uh, act as a shield and not only that, when the first penalty is hit, Jordan Henderson has this run up from about twenty-five yards, making him the first person that would get a rebound if possible. Whereas in the second pen- penalty, it's all French players that have got into the box. Do you do? You, is there any, anything in this? Is it is there a psychology of pen- penalty taking? It
1: seems. A, I don't know. I'm not sure where I stand on this one. Well, your man guide, who's he's obviously made a quite a name for himself in doing these Twitter threads on the psychology of. Of, of penalties. And to be fair to him, you know, he is a professor at the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences in football psychology. So I, I do find his, his friends fascinating, but because as you say, I think there's definitely teams that have a specific setup. As you said, you know, Henderson, as, as he's done Fred's on this before, Liverpool have a very organised way of when a penalty is given, Mo Salah is going to take it but you see, that, you know, players have a very specific role. You know, they almost create a shield around Salah so he can go away, concentrate, you know, they they push players away, you know, to get, to get Salah the ball, to, to, you know, to make sure he's, he's left alone, essentially. And he I think I remember he did a thread in terms of, tank think it was one that either the League Cup or, you know, the, the FA Cup final, like Chelsea, in terms of, I guess, the the body language. Of uh, the coaches, the the decision-making process, you know, you know, the way they were able to make the penalty takers feel comfortable, Mm -hmm. and and so on. So, I I find the threads interesting. I think you, as I have a good friend, Stephen Russell. Stephen's not sold on this at all in terms of the psychology. I I think. One of the issues, I guess, is—sounds boring—but is sounds boring, but it's the sample size. Of it in terms of how, essentially, how how can you measure this? You know, because it, it this is very outcome-based, right? So Harry Kane, Henderson is, is on there and protects Harry Kane for the, you know, for, uh, the first penalty he goes off, he misses the other one, and then it's easy to go back and say, "Oh, look at this team! This team was smiling before the penalties." They win the penalty shooter. There you go. I mean, so, I, I, I think the fear is interesting, but I think they are difficult to prove in, in any sort of meaningful, meaningful sense in, in terms of that. And there's there's always so many other factors to, that play in here. You know, other factors it's scoring a penalty, you know, a few minutes into the second half compared to five minutes before uh, the end of a quarterfinals. <laughs> it's, it's a bigger pressure. And the other thing around that is you're doing your second penalty, so automatically you start thinking, should I go to the same side? If I go to the same side, should should I hit it a bit harder? And so on. So I I like the theory. I think it's interesting. You know, good on Geyer, because uh, doing his threads, because uh, making that name for him as well. That sounds a bit sarky. I do generally mean that. Um, But also, I I don't know how much I think it's a lot outcome-based. I don't know how much you, you can really be certain of the kind of impact that has, but again, it's you know, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So if ever we play five a side together, Graham, and you get a penalty, mm. I will, I will not leave you alone. I, so I, you I, will, I will, I will, I will protect you.
0: I will just roll so, it at the bunker. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's wild that you're calling someone that's spelled G E I R
1: Gyer. Well, that's... I was, I was, I was going to start with how would you pronounce that. Because my, my stepdad is called Gar, and my, my son's trying to pronounce it. It's pretty funny. Gaira. I get a gar, gar. it's um, so. like like the drugs. Uh, we, we, how, we, how do you pronounce the second names?
0: <laughs> I've, 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 I've deleted it. Is it Reddit or something? Reddit. I can. I...
1: Yurat. Gar, Yurat. Okay, so.
0: That's... see See, when I'm watching so when I'm watching like a Bergman film for example and they're speaking Swedish yes, that sounds to me like hearing people in the Scottish Highlands speak Gaelic and the way that you pronounce that there just sounds like people in the Scottish Highlands speaking Gaelic uh,
1: well uh, on our upcoming pod, uh, similarities between the the Norse and Scots language I've, I've mm-hmm. I'll bring many examples There's a month doesn't go by Graham, well I discovered a Scottish word as actually Norwegian, so there you, there you go
0: like yeah. Viking. Yeah. Um, so we were planning on talking about uh, Grant Wall. See, my, my Ws are all effed up living in Germany because that would be Wall in German. Uh, Grant Wall, probably. Uh, but I don't. we've not got enough time to do it any justice. So we maybe we'll shelve that and hopefully there'll be more information out at the time we next record. But I just want to leave you, Christian, with a couple of snippets and just give me your short... And I'm emphasising this as short um, re- response to them. So we had uh, the Qatari Sports Investments Chair Nasir Al-Khalifi saying that sport has nothing to do with politics, adding politicians who use the World Cup to promote their own agenda will not succeed. And Barney Roney um, subtweeted this with, ha stop flipping burgers, run Ronald-, Ronald McDonald. And yes. the second tweet is that the teams that England have beaten in the last five World Cups are Senegal, Wales, Iran, Tunisia, Panama, Colombia on penalties, Sweden, Slovenia, Paraguay and Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago. And they're all crying about not winning this World Cup. I, um,
1: at the second one there, obviously, I added the teams they've beaten in the last five Euros, mm-hmm. which is well going way back to 2004. Switzerland, Croatia, knocked out by Portugal. Oh, wait, didn't qualify. 2012, Ukraine, Sweden, knocked out by Italy. 2016, beat Wales, knocked out by Iceland. And then obviously last year, they beat Croatia, Czech Republic. I guess Germany is the, the biggest team, a very weak uh, on the slide, Germany. And then beat Ukraine and Denmark after uh, extra time. So that is the last 10 tournaments. And yeah, again, Fun, really. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, your uh, your friend, your my friend, uh, Sp- Qatar Sports Investment Chair Nassar Al who who is obviously the the chairman of the Qatar Sports Investment, who Qatar Sports Investment is a subsidiary of the Qatar Investment Authority which is a state-run sovereign wealth fund in Qatar. Uh, and it was... So not political uh, at all, then. No, it was funded by the state of Qatar in 2005 to, as it says in Wikipedia, strengthen the country's economy by diversifying into new asset classes. Um, so obviously, the Qatari sports investment fund is in this for the football, really. Mm. That, that's, you know, that's, that's why they're here for. Don't care yeah. about anything else. It's just a burning desire to see... Uh, French club that they have absolutely no relationship re- really um, become the best club in the world and they do that because they bloody love football and that's, mm-hmm. that's it so yeah. Yeah. selfless really uh, yeah. selfless they should so buy that Liverpool is... <laughs> that's why could should buy Celtic that's 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 what's...
0: let's park that one also oh, uh, this has been your latest edition of the review I've been your host Graham Mackay. it's been an exciting fun Thrilled, right? Especially when your boiler is flooded,
1: Christian. Yes, I, I, I'm glad it's going to be able to do the pod because I, I thought our whole house was going to get flooded. But uh, to be honest, uh, my wife sorted it, so that is what usually happens around here. Hero. So, but we probably shouldn't turn the heating on. We know the issue. I probably shouldn't have done nothing. I think that's what it comes back to. But uh, you know, hoping I think to that's get evergreen.
0: The... I think that's
1: evergreen. yeah. Ho- hopefully, get the boiler guy out tomorrow. Um... He said he was maybe going to come today. Then he phoned me and said, oh, "Probably be tomorrow or Wednesday." I was like, "Okay, I'll just put another blanket on it, put another sweater on then." But it's actually a great guy. Shout out to Ryan if he's listening. He's probably not really listening, but
0: not to all. not to alarm you. But I can see like a cloud of steam come out your mouth when you speak, and uh, it must that's, be that that's
1: that's dragon breath. And, and I can see
0: saying. I can see your nipples through two jumbles, So that's how we called it. That's
1: is. a different podcast. Claire's had to stop. Just Claire. This is this is unprecedented. Producer Claire has shown her face before the pod is ended. Because I, <laughs> I think she just needs to cut this now. I think she needs to cut you off. Just she, cut she, him off, Claire. Just she needs to just cut Nipple the jet. line. <laughs> cut cut the line, Claire. <laughs>
0: Well, before we go, good news. Tom Rogic scored after coming off the bench for West Brom tonight, and they oh, won one. That's, 2-1. Nice. that's so probably lovely. make
1: makes the whole World Cup team that makes up for it. Yeah, it?
0: yeah. Anyway, we'll catch you down the road.